Good morning. We're going to be looking at prayer, leadership, and deliverance. And while you're turning to Matthew chapter 6, verses 8 through 13, I'm going to tell you a quick story about me and a friend of mine in which we needed leadership. We also needed deliverance. You see, I had this buddy, um, and him and I decided to go hunting with another buddy of mine in the Francis Marion National Forest out past Monk's Corner. And uh, it was going to be a great time of deer hunting. It was deer season, and we wanted to go out there and hunt. So uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but the woods, they look a lot different in the dark than they do in the daylight. So being good hunters that we were, we got up, packed up our stuff the night before, we got up really super early in the morning and drove on out there from Goose Creek to uh, good old Monk's Corner and got into the woods. Now, the third guy that, we were, that was with us, um, we both worked, all three of us worked together, he uh, had a climbing deer stand and he said, I'm going to go right in front of the truck where we parked, about uh, 25 yards, I'm going to find me a good tree, climb up in that good tree, I'm not going to face the truck, I'm going to face away from the truck and I'm going to find me a deer or rather hope that a deer comes my way. So great, it sounds like a good plan. Me and Brandon, we're going to uh, go out this way, and we're going to walk until we don't feel like walking no more. We're going to sit down and find us a good place the deer might pass by, and we might find us a deer. And uh, so the, all that was great. And so we sat down there, and uh, some time went by, and some more time went by. The sun came up, some more time went by. I saw a bunch of squirrels, didn't see any deer. So Brandon and I thought, oh, yeah, it was a good time for uh, us to get up and Maybe we'll go back to the car. Maybe we'll go see uh, what the other guy's doing, see if he had any luck. You know, we didn't hear any gunshots, so we probably didn't have any luck. So maybe we'll go get some lunch or something. And we got up and proceeded to walk back to what we thought was the car, but uh, it turned out it wasn't. So him and I had a discussion. Should we go left? Should we go right? Should we go straight? Keep going on this path we're going. We've walked, clearly walked a lot longer, what felt like to be a lot longer than we originally walked. So clearly we didn't know where we were going. And so he said, no, Mike, I think, you know, we'll follow you. I said, all right, sweet. So we'll go this way and we'll keep going. Then about, you know, several minutes later, I'm like, hey, you know, this, my way is not working. How about we try your way? Let's, let's go your way. And so we'll just walk double the distance or double the time that we've already walked my way. Uh, hopefully your way will out better than mine. Uh, well, in that time, we needed leadership. We needed strong leadership. We needed somebody who knew what was where we were. We needed deliverance uh, from the woods uh, back to our car. Okay? Now, it's a little bit of humorous, but we're looking at, this morning in Matthew chapter 6, we're looking at God's leadership in our life, in our prayer life, but in our lives. And, uh, and so we're, we're looking at that. And so I use this story to, to kind of pique interest in, in, in the sermon this morning, because at Brandon and I, we, t- we took a turn, and we just walked. And we said, you know what, we're going to walk until... Either we, we run out of daylight or we run into a road. And it turns out we walked for several, 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 several hours, and we ended up on a road. And then we came to this paved road, and we were like, great, take a right or a left. I think we need to take a left. So we took a left, and we walked and walked and walked, and my cell phone did not have any cell phone service. And it uh, turns out I was in the woods. Uh, <clears throat> so we continued to walk until we came to this little store, a, a little convenience store, a gas station. It had like two pumps or something like that. Now... I picture this, two dudes walking down the side of a highway, come to this grocery store, and we're in the middle of nowhere, by the way, and we all got camo on, guns and everything, it's like, it's a mess, and when we're like packed up, we got our chairs on our back, and it's, it's a mess. Well, he's like, I think we, oh, we'll go in there, use a, a telephone, we'll call, we'll call his wife, his wife will come pick us up. Unfortunately, they didn't, their phone was not working that day, uh, so I said, all right, great, we'll just keep walking. And maybe I'll get cell phone service and call your wife. So eventually we, we continued to walk, continued to walk, continued to walk, and I finally got cell phone service. Called his wife and said, hey, can you come pick us up? Um, she's like, where are you? I said, that's a good question. Um, and so uh, we continued to walk a little bit further. We saw the big bridge in Monk's Corner. You know that big bridge that passed uh, Chick-fil-A? You know what I'm talking about? All right, cool. That's a good marker. Hey, we're at this bridge. Come pick us up. Now, from that bridge, I know how to get back to my car, but it is quite a distance from where we were to where the car is, and it wasn't going to walk that far. It was quicker to wait for her to come from Latson to Monk's Corner, where we were, to pick us up and take us to the car than for us to walk to the car. Um, and so that Wow. A roundabout way of getting to back to the car. Uh, we needed leadership. If I just had GPS, it would have been perfect. And, you know, Brandon and I talked about that. Next time we go in the woods, we'll get GPS. 
Um, well, we're looking at prayer, or we're looking at um, leadership and deliverance in prayer. We've been studying the model prayer in, in, in Matthew chapter 6 uh, for, for quite some weeks now, and we've, we've seen how Jesus gives us the framework for our prayers, and how we're supposed to acknowledge God's sovereignty when we pray, how we're supposed to acknowledge God's supremacy and God's will when we pray, how we're supposed to acknowledge God's provision, and also acknowledge our reliance upon God's provision when we pray and, and when we conduct daily life. And we see the need for God's forgiveness in our own lives. We also see the need to forgive others in, in life. And we see the need to uh, seek, seek that intentionally. But today we're going to be looking at the acknowledgement of God's leadership and His deliverance. In Matthew chapter 6, uh, verses 8-13, through 13, we'll begin reading the text here. It says this, Jesus speaking, So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and power and the glory forever. Amen. Dear Father, I just thank you for this day that you've given us, Lord. I thank you for this time that you, uh, you give us to worship you, Lord. That uh, I thank you for calling us to yourself, Father. This is your people, Father. And I pray over them, Father, that your, your word would just penetrate their hearts, Father. That you would open up your word and our understanding that we might see you, Father. We might be obedient to you. We might submit to your leadership, God. And God, that as we fight the battles and the struggles of life, Father, as we fight temptation in our own lives, that we, we fight against the demonic forces that influence us, Father, that um, in Christ and by your Holy Spirit that you've given to us to reside in us, God, we can be victorious. And Father, I thank you for this teaching, Father. I thank you for this time, Father. I pray, Father, that you uh, would lead us as a church and as people, uh, for your namesake, lead us into righteousness, Father, as you do, Father. Help us to be submissive and obedient to your leadership, Father. So, Father, I thank you for this time, Lord. I pray, Father, that you bless your people, Father. I pray, Father, if there's somebody here that doesn't know you, Father, they can, you would open their heart, Father, they can truly see their need for Christ. And, Father, that today would be the day that they submit their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, Father. And I thank you for all the hope that you give us, Father, for the eternal glory that you promised us, Father. And, Father, I just thank you for this time, Lord. I lift your name on high, and it's in Jesus' precious and holy name we give thanks. Amen. All right, so we're looking at verse 13 uh, in, in great detail, but I just wanted to read the whole model prayer here so that we can kind of get the sense of what Jesus is trying to tell us. Would you please notice in verse 8, Jesus, uh, he says this, that your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So we have to presuppose something about God, and that Jesus is telling us, pointing this out to us, that it is that God is all-knowing. That is something we need to presuppose about God, that he's all-knowing. But just because God, our Father, knows what we need before we ask him, does not mean that he does not desire the intimate relationship, does not desire the intimacy with us, that where we would go and ask him uh, for the things that we need. He desires um, that our relationship with him, although he knows what we need, he desires our relationship with him to be so intimate that we would feel comfortable coming to him and asking him for the things that we need, the things that we desire, the things that uh, we need help in. That's the kind of God that we serve. Sometimes, my wife and I, um, sometimes, you know, I may know the answer to what she needs to do. She doesn't want me to do that. She wants to have the intimacy with me that I can just sit down and listen to her and hear her. And then, a little bit later on, she'll say, what do you think I should do about that? Uh, and then that's my, that's my time to, to provide that. And God desires that similar relationship with us and that although he knows what we need before we ask him, he desires us to come before him to have that kind of um, relationship and the intimacy with him to say, hey, Lord, I need this and this and this and I need you to, I would like you to provide this for me. And, um, and, and we, when he does provide those answers, we need to be submissive to him. There's a presupposition here also. It says, your father. Um, what is he talking about? He's talking about the people of God. He's talking about us. He's talking about people, his people. So understand that um, 
this is assuming that these people, that the people that Jesus is saying that need to model their prayers after, after this, it is um, for God's people. So, um, <clears throat> so as we seek to understand the model prayer and we look at God's del- leadership and deliverance um, in verse 13, we will uh, understand that this is uh, one of the, if you're not a child of God, it is not possible um, apart from salvation and, and, and surrenderance to Christ as Lord of your life, it's not possible that God would lead you um, on a day-to-day basis. So in Matthew 6.13, it says this, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So, you know, this, this verse right here brings the question to my mind, and I'm going to ask this question to you. Does God lead people into temptation or evil? And I think that's what we need to, we need to answer that question. So the first, point is, the first point is what Jesus didn't say. Huh? Jesus is not saying that God leads people into temptation or evil. Now the word here can be translated in Greek, temptation, can also mean trials. But let's be clear here that God does not tempt his people to sin. I think that's important to point out. And we know that because James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, if you go there real quick, in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, we get to see that temptation to sin is intrinsic. It comes from ourself. It comes from our sinful, inherited uh, sin heart. It says this in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So Jesus is not saying that God tempts his people to sin. We see that it is our own lust that entices us to sin. We also see in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul is talking to the Ephesian people there, and in verse, starting in verse 11 and 12, we see that temptation to sin is not only intrinsic to self, but it's also, it's also um, by Satan and demonic forces. And Paul says this in verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians 6. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. So we see that the temptation to sin is the inherited sin nature and comes from satanic influences. And a good Old Testament um, book to go to to like fully see this is in Job. If you'll turn with me to Job um, chapter 1, we'll look at verses 6 through 12, and we'll see that God does not tempt man to sin, but rather it is an act of Satan. says this, <clears throat> Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have, put, you have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely, he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. And then we know uh, <clears throat> from the rest of that chapter that uh, Satan goes and he um, strikes Job's children and his children die and uh, a bunch of other stuff happens to Job at the hand of the work of Satan. Now, God does not tempt his people to sin. Satan does that. Our own uh, flesh does that. But God does not do that. As a matter of fact, when Satan wants to tempt you to sin, when Satan wants to come against you, um, as is his goal, 
God sometimes allows it, but he also puts, um, puts uh, limitations on what Satan's allowed to do for, for, against God's people. So, Jesus is not saying that God tempts his people to sin, but rather that that temptation uh, comes from our own uh, sinful flesh and it, and it comes from the, the act of Satan and the demonic influences. But understand this, that God does use trials and he does use faith testing. And you say, hey, well, what's the difference between temptation and a trial? Well, when God tries your faith, it is never unto sin. It's never unto evil. It's not, see, God doesn't commune with evil. He's, there's nothing evil about him. Uh, therefore, God isn't going to put something before you and, and say, hey, this is, this is this evil thing, and he's not going to put it before you and say, hey, here you go, don't do this. No. But rather, when God tries our faith, it's a testing unto righteousness. And that testing unto righteousness has a divine purpose, which is necessary to produce a stronger faith. It also produces a confidence in him. We have a stronger confidence in Christ when God tests our faith. If you'll consider with me James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, uh, James says this. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So when we come to a trial of faith, or testing of faith, we should have the perspective that um, we should endure it with joy. Because it's doing something for us, something good in us, for the glory of God. And we see this in uh, Abraham and Isaac, where God tested Abraham's faith, not with sin, but rather obedience. In Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 3, and in verse 12, we'll see this example clearly displayed. And it says this, in Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 3, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And verse 12 says this, As Abraham went to do this in obedience to the command of God, he took all this stuff and they went on a three days journey to the land of Moriah, to the mountain where God had told them. And God placed his son upon the altar that he built in obedience to God. And as he rose his hand to, um, to strike his son, to offer him as a burnt offering, verse 12 says this, An angel of the Lord appeared, and he said, Do not stretch your hand out against, your, against the lad, and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. You see, when God tests our faith, it's an obedience. It's not, it's not using evil mechanisms. It's not using evil mediums. It's not using sinful mediums. And those sinful things, those sinful mechanisms come from Satan. They come from our own sinful flesh. So when we look at this, uh, Jesus in, in Matthew 6.13, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we have to consider this, that... Um, we have to consider that God is the one leading. And so, <clears throat> we have to be submissive to God's leadership. So, our perspective has to be pure on who God is. Our perspective of who God is has to be pure for us to really understand God's leadership. So, when we are tempted and tried by uh, sinful desire or by um, demonic influence, we look at that and we say, oh, this is evil, this is Satan, this is not of God. And when we, when we are tried and our faith is tested, 
under obedience and under righteousness, we look at it and say, God is good because he's building me up for something. He's strengthening my faith. He's quickening me for something. I'm building my confidence in Christ so I can endure until the day of redemption. Abraham obeyed God. I think this is important to, to point out in Genesis 22 that Abraham obeyed God because he feared and respected God. Abraham had a pop, proper perspective of who God is, and that drove him to obedience in his time of testing. You see, God is perfect. He's holy. He's pure. He's the definition and the essence of perfection. He's a giver of good gifts. He's the author of life, and he's very loving. So when God tests your faith, it, he usually does it to reveal what is in your heart. The, the testing of your faith really truly reveals what's in your heart. So this week I want to make a challenge to you that you allow a proper perspective of God to shape how you view temptation and trials and thus how you react to those temptations and trials. Ask God to help you respond in a holy manner to temptation in your life and repent of any things that you have wrongly attributed to God's fault. So we're looking and we're considering leadership. So our second point is leadership, being led by God. What does that mean? And Jesus said in Matthew 6.13, and, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so he's, the, the implication there is God is leading his people, right? And so what does it mean to be led by God? Well, first we've got to acknowledge God's leadership. Jesus supposes that God's people are being led by him, and being victorious through temptation isn't possible unless we are being led by God's leadership. The Spirit of God is what allows us to be victorious through temptation. If you'll turn to me in Romans chapter 8, uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 14, we'll read this real quick. Talking about God's leadership, being led by God, being victorious through temptation, because we are being led by God. In, ver in, in chapter 8, of Romans, verses 1 through 14, it says this. It says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. And if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And so what we see here in this passage, is we see this, this dichotomy between uh, the mind on the flesh, the mind on the Spirit. We see that when we put uh, the mind on the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, uh, <clears throat> its fruit is righteousness and peace and life. And when we see that, we are focusing on godly things. The natural outcome of that is the death to the fleshly things. And God has given us his Holy Spirit to enable us to be led by him, to overcome that temptation, to crucify the works of the flesh, if you will. God has given his Holy Spirit to us to empower us to do that. Our, prayer, our prayers must ask God to use his Spirit to work in our hearts and our minds, to lead us out of temptation and into righteousness. And sometimes this is a moment-by-moment -moment necessity. You know, becoming, be, being submissive to God's leadership against the natural tendency of our mind, our body, and our feelings. 
Um, you know, feelings are fickle. That's what a friend of mine likes to say a lot. Feelings are fickle. And they will lead you in the wrong direction. But you know what? God's word will not lead you in the wrong direction. God's word will always lead you into righteousness. And so we pray that God would uh, use his spirit to recall those things that we've learned from his word in our time of temptation, in our time of trials, that we would be submissive and obedient to his word and the Holy Spirit's conviction and to trust in God's promises as we put our faith into action. And that leadership, and that's God's leadership, and our submission to his leadership will lead us out of temptation. Now, don't misunderstand. When I'm, I'm not saying that temptation is not hard to deal with. I'm not saying it's not a struggle. Don't misunderstand. But I am saying that it is possible by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and by the work of Christ, it is, it is possible to overcome temptation. So we're talking about being led by God, leadership. Understanding that our submission to God's leadership starts in prayer. Okay, It starts in prayer. And it is immersed in God's holy word. Meaning that God's direction is derived from his word. We receive that from God's word. That's why it's important for us to be in the scriptures daily. And then the culmination of that is shown through the outpouring of our life. It's manifested in our actions and our reactions. So you want to know, hey, am I, am I being submissive to the leadership of God? Look at your reactions to things. Look at your, how you respond to things. That's a good indicator of whether or not you are being led by the Spirit of God. Is the fruit produced that of the Spirit or is it that of the flesh? So, what does God's Word actually do for us? And I made mention that we need to be in God's Word in order to be submissive to God's leadership, and we have to, uh, we have to be in prayer continually for this. So what does God's Word do for us? Well, in Psalms 119, in Psalms 119, the whole thing is great. It talks about the Word of God. But Psalms 119, verse 11, says this, uh, Your Word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalms 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So what does God's word do for us? Well, for first, when we treasure in our hearts, it gives us the ability to know that which is uh, righteous and that which is not. So any departure from righteousness, that would be sin. And so it helps us not to fall into sin. It helps us to discern that which is of Satan and that which is not of Satan, that which is of demonic influence and that which is not, that which is of holy and pure and righteousness. And so it helps us, and when we treasure God's word in our heart, it helps us to identify what actually is sin and what isn't. And God's word illuminates our path, the path that we should take. It illuminates it. When we're in God's word, his word shows us the right direction. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says this, For the word of God is living, active, and sharper than a two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What does God's word do for us? It's active and it's living. It's dividing away the things that need to be removed from our life, and it's revealing that to us. And, and James talks about you know, a natural man who looks in the mirror, right? What does the mirror do? It's a ref- shows you, you know, if your eyeliner is on straight. It shows you if you have got all the spots of hair off when you shaved. It shows you a reflection of what you're seeing. God's Word is able to slice through the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. It's able to fold back the ugly, the nasty, the good, and it's able to judge between the two. God's Spirit reveals to us that which we need to eradicate from our heart, whether it be anger, whether it be jealousy, whether it be pride, whether it be arrogance, whatever it is, God's Word is what reveals that to us. It's what, it's what goes in and surgically, precision with precision, peels back the layers until we see that which we need to repent of. 
So being in God's leadership, or being under God's leadership, it's incumbent that we be in God's word. So temptation, let's talk about that for a minute. And Jesus said, and do not lead us into temptation. Well, what is temptation? Oh, I tell you that temptation, you know, is not something new, and it doesn't discriminate. It will get anybody. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verses 13 and 14, Paul talks to the Corinthian church, and he says this. He said, no temptation has overtaken you, but such, such as is common to man, and God is faithful. So he's saying there that, hey, Temptation for, for me is no different than temptation for you. Temptation for me is no different than temptation for you. That you're not going to endure something that somebody else has never endured before. So, understand this. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but when, with the temptation, will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. So Paul is saying there that God will provide a way out. That's a promise. That when you're tempted, and oh, by the way, you're not the only one that's ever been tempted, but when you are tempted, God will provide a way out. But you have to take it. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. You can go back and read Genesis 3. But I want to show you something. Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 was tempted by Satan, a serpent. You know the story. But he was tempted by Satan, a serpent, in, in Genesis 3, right? They had the ability to not eat of the tree that they were commanded not to eat of. They had the ability to go somewhere else. They, Eve had the ability not to talk to the serpent. But she did not flee idolatry. No, she thought wisdom was better. She thought, oh, I'd be like God. Okay, that's good. And disobeyed the commandment of God. Therefore, sin entered the world. If you look in Matthew chapter 4 with me, Matthew chapter 4, just a few pages back from our main text, uh, we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus. Satan tempted Jesus. We're going to read verses 1 through 11, and it says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. This shows Jesus' humanity right here. Jesus became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that those stones become bread. And he said, But he answered him and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus quoted scripture. Then the devil took him into the holy city. And had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, or throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan quoted scripture. But Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus said, Uh uh-uh, uh, nope, you're miss you're missing the point here. And in verse 8, And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the, world, of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister him. There are some unique things that we see in the temptation of Jesus. For one, after Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights, that's when the tempter came, when Jesus became hungry. You think Satan's going to come when you're on like your spiritual high, on the high mountain, and you're doing the best that you've ever done in your walk with Christ? No, he's going to come to you when there's something that you need, and he's going to tempt you with that. He may even misrepresent the words of God in Genesis 3, the serpent, Satan, took on the form of a serpent and said to Eve, but did God did not surely say you would do this, right? He misquoted God. And it's why it's super important. Jesus quoted the scriptures here to Satan in his time of temptation. It's important for us to be able to do that in our own life. Understand that temptation is not a foreign concept to Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, it says this, but we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one 
who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus understands what we go through on a daily basis. He understands what it's like to be being led by the Spirit of God, but also being tempted by Satan. And it says this in uh, verse 16, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Amen. God. Jesus gives us mercy and grace in our time of need. And we can approach him. You know, a lot of times when we're tempted, and even if we fall into temptation and we fail, we then shriek away from our walk with Christ. We shriek away from our fellowship with Christ. But here it says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive a mercy and find grace and, and our, uh, to help in our time of need. And we will need that. First John says that um, if we confess our sins one to another, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if that be the case, then why is it that when temptation comes upon us, we become shameful and walk away from God when God calls us to himself? So if you want to be in the, under the leadership of, of God, being under the leadership of God, being submissive to God's leadership, we have to be in prayer, asking for God's leadership, asking for God's spirit to be active in our heart, asking for God to be um, active when we read the Word. We have to be in God's Word so that when the time of temptation comes, we are able to stand strong on the Word of God and to look at God's promises. Um, so this week, I'd like to challenge you to do this in your prayers. Ask God to lead you in His Word through your choices. Ask Him to empower you to submit to His leadership so that <clears throat> you can identify at least one area in your life that you can intentionally change in submission to God's leadership. It's like a spring cleaning, if you will. We're like springing to prayer. It's like a spring cleaning. It's to kind of clean out those areas that we have kept hidden from God. If there's any of those areas in your life, allow the Spirit of God to reveal that to you. Allow the Word of God to make active changes in there. Jesus said in Matthew 6.13, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So let's look at this idea of deliverance. Deliverance from evil. Two things I want us to consider about deliverance. Uh, there's a temporal deliverance and there's an eternal deliverance. Uh, both are important, but the, the term deliverance in the Greek it implies being rescued by God. God is rescuing us from evil. Deliverance in the physical, I'm talking about temporal deliverance. At, at time, God delivers his people from anguish and pain in the flesh. However, you know, this isn't the main focus here. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1-3, through 3, it says this, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. So we do see that God does give temporal deliverance, does give temporal protection here in this in this, in, in this world. But our aim is much bigger than the minor struggles of earth. Our focus should be eternal in nature. Our focus should be heavenly minded. Uh, consider Romans 8.18. It says this. Paul is speaking. He says, For I consider the sufferings... Uh, talking about Paul, a man well acquainted with suffering and grief. He says this. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And so he's saying that no matter what happens here in this, in, in this earth, no matter whatever I endure, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that God is going to reveal to us. 1 Peter 5, 8-11 uh, says this. We'll turn there real quick. 1 Peter 5, 8-11 um, says this. It says, Be... Uh, of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself per perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Satan wants to end you. And God is providing deliverance through Christ. 
eternal deliverance. What does that look like? Christ, our hope and victory. In 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15, turn there with me real quick, and we'll look at that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says, starting in verse 42, it says this. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised in an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So as it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spirit is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so are also those who are earthly. And as is the heavenly, so are also those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about the difference between the natural man and the, the Christ follower. He's talking about the one who is redeemed the, by Adam, the first, uh, the first man. Sin came and death came. Um, a perishable body. But by Jesus, righteous spiritual body. Jesus became a life-giving spirit. So this, the mystery of the resurrection in verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable will have put on the imperishable, and the, this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see here what Paul is talking about. The glory that's going to be revealed is when Christ raises us up. The same power that raised Christ from the grave is the same power that's going to raise us up for those who put their hope and their future in Christ. So consider this for a moment. Jesus gives us the model prayer. He says in verse 13, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And Jesus then becomes the very mechanism, mode, the vehicle by which we can obtain that. Just a few weeks later, months later, Jesus is going to give himself up on a cross. And he's going to die the death that I should die, that you should die, that we deserve to die. And he's going to give himself up for us. And he's going to take the punishment that we deserve. And on the third day, three days journey, as Abraham and Isaac took to Mount Moriah, but on the third day, Jesus is going to raise again by the power of God. And Paul is so convinced that he understands this, that nothing that man can do to him on earth is even worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us when God raises us up to an eternal inheritance, to the glory of the power of his name. And so we have a hope in a future. God's solution to our issue with sin and Satan is Jesus. So I want to invite you to really focus yourself upon Christ and what it means to be free from the law of sin. We looked at it in Romans chapter 8, verses uh, 1 through 14, a little bit earlier. What does that mean? In uh, John eight thirty six, it says, If the Son has set you free, yes, you are free indeed. What are we free to do? We're free to have life. To have life, John 10, 10. Jesus come that I, the, the thief uh, comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. What kind of abundant life? A life that is focused on the internal inheritance that God has given us in Christ. A life that, um, a future that far outweighs the sufferings of this 
temporary world and a opportunity to be led by the living God, an opportunity to have a fellowship and a relationship with the living God who created the universe, a relationship with God that's intimate, that's so intimate that God would lead us, that a holy God would lead his people, not into temptation, but into deliverance, deliverance from evil, into victory against Satan and his, his forces. So you may be asking yourself, what if I don't know Christ? I, you know, I've listened to you and I understand that um, that Jesus has given this model prayer and that there are things that um, God wants me to do. He wants me to be under his leadership. He wants me to be delivered by his power. He wants me to, to live in victory uh, by the power of his spirit. But I, I just don't, I don't understand that stuff. I, I, don't, I don't even know Christ. Like, what does that mean? How do, how do I get to know Christ? And it starts with the gospel. That is the message that you've heard already that sin came through Adam's disobedience unto all men, that Jesus came, God provided a way of rescue. He's rescuing us through Jesus, who gave himself up the punishment that we deserve. He took on himself so that we would be delivered, so that we could have a relationship with him. Why? Because he loves us. And, um, and John, Jesus gave himself up because he loves us. And so then they say, well, okay, I understand that. I understand that I am broken, that I am under uh, sin, that, that there are things in my life that don't meet the standard of God. I understand that. And I understand that Jesus is the Son of God who came to give himself up for me so that I could have a relationship with him. Now what? What do I do? And I invite you to Romans chapter 10. We'll look at verses 8 through 13. And that will answer that question there. It says this. It says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart, for with a, heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with a mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that is simply how you obtain that salvation, that eternal inheritance, that, that hope in that future. And you say, well, what does that mean for me, the Christian? Like, I know that. I've been following God for a while. What does that mean for me? Well, I'd say this it means that maybe we should be reminded that as we are under God's leadership, that we are continually being delivered from, uh, from our sinful nature and from Satan's influences, that we have to refocus ourselves upon Christ and the eternal freedom that he gives us. And we look for the day and we long for the day in which we don't find ourselves in those struggles anymore. Because there's coming a time when God is going to, if you look in Revelation chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 8, when God is going to reestablish the earth and the kingdom that he intended it from the beginning, where there will be no demonic influence, there will be no sin, there will be no hurt, there will be no tears, there will be no mourning, that the toil that we have now is worth the work because the work we have now is worth the hard labor uh, because of the inheritance that we will receive. So this week in your prayers, the last challenge I'm going to issue to you, this week in your prayers, as you ask God to help you, um, you ask God to help you understand as much as humanly possible the weight, the reality of the deliverance that Christ has given to us. Let us not take that for granted, that our sin nature has condemned us to death, but God has allowed through his son and his sacrifice and his resurrection us to have the power of his spirit living and abiding in us to lead us into righteousness. Psalm 23 says that God leads us into righteousness. So I ask you this, to do this, as you, as you seek, uh, as you ask God to help you seek the understanding that you understand the weight and the reality of the deliverance and the hope that Christ has given to us, 
identify at least one area in your life that you're not expressing thankfulness to God for the deliverance from evil and the future that he's given to us. And repent and change that perspective. Simply this. Find an area in your life that you haven't been thankful for because of whatever reason. And ask God. Say, look God, I'm sorry. I give this to you. I repent of that. Help me to be thankful for your deliverance and your grace in this area of my life. And then I'd ask you to find a person to share God's grace and his, and his hope and what he's done in your life. I, I ask you to find a person that you can lean on, that they can lean on you, Father, uh, rather, and, and, and they can hear the gospel message from you. It doesn't have to be long and detailed, but just find somebody you can share what God has done in your life, the hope that he's given you, the deliverance and the leadership that he provides with, to you. I ask you to share that with somebody this week. So as we get ready to conclude, uh, band, you can come on forward. Um, and we get ready for a time of invitation. I'd ask you to think about these things. First, understand. And say, all right, well, all that's good, but what do you want me to really remember? These things. Think about these things. That God does not lead us into temptation, but he delivers us from evil. That Jesus come, that we would have life, we would have it more abundantly, we'd have it, we would have life without the, the fear of being condemned because of our sin. He's paid for that. I'd ask you to consider what we've learned from Jesus' example, to view God with a proper perspective, to understand the difference between temptation of sin and the testing of faith, to understand the origin of each temptation and trials to understand the necessity of God's leadership in our lives and how we submit to it, to understand the deliverance of God both in the physical and the eternal realms, to understand the significance of Christ and our focus upon him. And so how does Jesus want to change my prayer life from this? Pray for discernment in temptations and trials. Pray for God's explicit leadership. Pray for help and submission to his leadership by obedience to God's word. Pray for focus upon Christ when battling temptations and trials. And then pray for perseverance and endurance until, until the eternal delivery. So, I ask you to remember these things. That God doesn't tempt his people to sin, but God does lead his people. God does deliver his people. And God does want to make these truths realities in your life and in your prayer life. So as we get ready for a time of invitation, I ask you to think about those things. Think about the scriptures that we've read. And really, I'd encourage you to to focus your perspective upon Christ, upon how we can be led by him in a moment-by-moment basis, be obedient to his word and submission to his word through his leadership, that we would be delivered from temptation and that we'd be delivered from evil. And as we get ready for that time of invitation, if you don't know Christ, if you've never met Christ, you don't have that relationship, uh, Brother Ed's going to be up here, uh, Sister Rachel's going to be up here, I'm going to be up here, uh, any of us, um, Pastor Troy, um, Pastor Brian, Brother Walter will be uh, around in the congregation, um, I'd ask you guys to come talk to one of us. Have that peace before you leave today, because God wants you He wants you to be led by him. He wants you to be obedient to him. And the first step in doing that is salvation in Christ. The price is too great to take a rain check on that. Amen.